Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. The 1914 Christmas Truce As dusk arrived on December 24, 1914, it was a cold night on the Western Front. Temperatures were below freezing. In some areas it was a clear night, in others it was snowing. It was Christmas Eve, a holiday celebrated by all of the combatants. It had been five months since the start of the war, and already German, French, and British armies, slugging it out in the mud of Flanders, had experienced unimaginable casualties. The war was supposed to be over by Christmas, or so many of the soldiers had been told. Their leaders and the waves of national optimism that saw them march off to war in the summer of 1914 had guaranteed a quick war. But as many of them suffered from frostbite, pneumonia, rheumatism, and trench foot, it was clear that was an empty promise. Soldiers on both sides were suffering, and by Christmas Eve, with many missing families, friends, and anything familiar, that shared suffering probably seemed more acute. There was little reason for the soldiers to be cheerful. Between September and December 1914, Germany had lost more than 100,000 men killed in action. Within the British Expeditionary Force, battalions that had started the war with 1,000 men were down to 30 men commanded by a single officer. The 7th Division in particular went from 12,000 men to 2,500 men and from 400 officers to 50 officers in the space of four weeks. French losses were equally as devastating and each side could also claim hundreds of thousands of wounded and missing. Across the world, leaders of neutral countries called for peace. Many religious leaders also called for an end to the hostilities. As December 1914 approached, no one was more vocal than Pope Benedict XV. Pope Benedict's papacy would be completely defined by World War I, a war he later referred to as the suicide of civilized Europe. Elected Pope about a month after the war began, he did not appear on the balcony of St. Peter's Basilica to grant their traditional Urbi et Orbi blessing. Instead, on November 1, 1914, as the race to the sea was in progress along the Western Front, he issued his first encyclical. In it he wrote, On every side the dread phantom of war holds sway. Day by day the earth is drenched with newly shed blood and is covered with the bodies of the wounded and of the slain. Sorrow and distress swoop down over every city and every home. All are in distress. He concluded with an appeal for peace. Grant, O Lord, peace in our day. As Christmas approached, and with little hope of permanently squelching the war, Christian leaders, both Protestant and Catholic, began to push for a Christmas truce. On December 7, 1914, in an official letter to the belligerents, Pope Benedict asked each to observe a Christmas truce so that the guns could fall silent at least upon the night the angels sing, the day celebrated as the birth of the Prince of Peace. Ultimately, his plea, and the plea of many others, came to nothing. Outside forces were proving to be completely incapable of halting the conflict, even for a day. But on the massive battlefield of Europe, some soldiers, many of them away from home for their first Christmas ever, would take matters into their own hands as the holiday approached. Despite the devastation and the suffering in the trenches, there was a marked live-and-let-live attitude in the days leading up to Christmas 1914. No one on either side wanted to die on Christmas Day. 
Many letters home from the front lines in the fall and winter of 1914 reveal a shift in attitudes that would ultimately make an unofficial Christmas truce possible in some areas. Charles Hamilton Sorley, a British soldier and poet, wrote home in late 1914 that his platoon was perfectly prepared to ignore the Germans if the Germans were willing to ignore them. Sorley also noted that those on patrol had an informal understanding with the enemy that went something like this. All patrols, English and German, are much averse to the death and glory principle. So, on running up against one another, both pretend they are the Levites and the other is a good Samaritan, and pass by on the other side, no word spoken. To provide discomfort to the other is but a roundabout way of providing it for themselves. This live-and-let-live philosophy intensified as Christmas approached, and manifested itself in what scholars today refer to as the Christmas Truce of 1914. This was not one isolated event, nor was it completely widespread. This Christmas truce took different shapes and forms throughout the Western Front, primarily based on the agency and interests of small bands of soldiers. Letters Home provides scholars with the most evidence of Christmas in the trenches in 1914. On Christmas Eve 1914, a German soldier, Herbert Schlusbach, wrote home, we are all moved and feel quite melancholy, each of us taken up with his own thoughts of home. Another German soldier near Ypres heard a French soldier singing a Christmas carol and wrote home that he kept alert, but that he could not help his thoughts from drifting from the battlefield and to his family. In other areas, strange lights began to appear along the German trenches. British soldiers initially thought this was the beginning of an attack but soon they began to realize the lights were candles decorating Christmas trees that the Germans had propped up outside the trenches. From the German lines, there were shouts of English soldiers, Happy Christmas, Where are your Christmas trees? Followed by Christmas carols. Elsewhere the same night, the 1st Somerset Light Infantry was surprised when a German band across no man's land performed the national anthems of Britain and Germany. The British soldiers cheered their anthem and sang a few songs back. In other sectors, the singing became quite competitive. The London Rifle Brigade heard the German soldiers opposite them singing a carol and decided to retaliate by singing the first Noel. Not to be outdone, the Germans then retaliated with O Tannenbaum. This continued and continued until the English began singing O Come All Ye Faithful, and the German soldiers joined in by singing the hymn in Latin. Rifleman Graham Williams of the London Rifle Brigade wrote in astonishment, well, this was really a most extraordinary thing, two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. Culturally, despite the war, when it came to Christmas, the German and British soldiers had many things in common, but these friendly gestures to the enemy were not limited to British and German fraternization. Although evidence of German and French Christmas truces is much more slim, some did occur in 1914. One incident in particular took place during a mass for French soldiers. One French officer wrote home expressing his surprise that the Germans across the way did not fire on the French during the church service. In the end, he reasoned, the Germans across no man's land were Bavarian Catholics and therefore not inclined to disrupt the mass of the French Catholics. In the midst of all of this, some brave soldiers even came across no man's land to exchange items like food, tobacco, and coffee. Trust was not easily established, and some soldiers were certainly killed just attempting a temporary truce. But evidence reveals that an exchange of food and other little gifts tended to result in temporary reproachment on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day.
In some areas, the truce went beyond friendly banter, exchanges of food, singing, and temporary ceasefires. For some, Christmas Day was spent sorting and collecting corpses in no man's land. Soldiers on both sides participated in funerals, paying their respects to their own comrades and to the fallen enemy. And in probably the most extraordinary example of the Christmas truce, there is ample evidence that a short soccer game was played between British and German soldiers in no man's land. Four days after this impromptu game, a Sergeant Clement Barker of the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards wrote a letter home that described the event. According to Barker, on Christmas Eve, a German soldier approached the British lines under a flag of truce and said that his unit had resolved to not fire a shot on Christmas Day if the British were in agreement. The British agreed to this unofficial truce, and on Christmas Day, Barker wrote, a German looked over the trench, no shots. Our men did the same. And then a few of our men went out and brought the dead in and buried them. And the next thing, a football kicked out of our trench, and the Germans and English played football. It was more of a kickabout than a real game, but it was an enjoyable, if not surreal, pause in the fighting. Other little soccer games also occurred along the Western Front. A private Ernie Williams of the 6th Cheshires wrote of another kickabout on Christmas Day 1914, in which he estimated over a 100 soldiers participated. Today, to honor the 1914 Christmas soccer matches between the belligerents, there is now a youth league tournament in Ypres that brings together Belgian, French, British, and German soccer teams. Scholars suggest many reasons why the Christmas truce of 1914 happened in some areas, from the basic impulse of soldiers to celebrate a shared holiday, to the fact that the animosity and suffering in the trenches had not yet reached its high, to the simple belief that the landscape and villages along the front lines had not yet been totally devastated, making it easy for soldiers to slip between the world of the trenches and the civilized world that they remembered. What stands out the most, however, is that the 1914 Christmas truce would not happen again on such a scale during World War I. Christmas 1915 and beyond would be different. For many scholars of the period, the increasing brutality of the War of Attrition allowed soldiers after 1914 to dehumanize their enemies to the point that no fraternization was possible, that the idea of a Christmas truce would have been repugnant to all soldiers. In some ways, this is true, but recent research also challenges the claim that the brutality of war resulted in no truces after 1914. The diaries and individual letters of soldiers on both sides of the conflict indicate that small-scale truces, even if against regulations, did occur after 1914. However, the major block to future truces came from generals on both sides. Enraged by the fraternization of 1914, the general staffs of each army on the Western Front forbade any such similar event from taking place in the future. Snipers were sent to the front lines to enforce this order, and artillery barrages were ordered to make the crossing of no man's land impossible. Stephen Graham, a British writer and journalist who later enlisted in the Scots Guards and fought in 1918, wrote a book after the war recounting anecdotes. He wrote of a Sergeant Oliver of the 6th Black Watch, who was shot trying to cross no man's land on Christmas Day 1915, or as Graham put it, a man who gave his life to shake hands on Christmas Day. Many scholars have argued that the key factor in the occurrence of a Christmas truce on the Western Front was whether or not the enemy the Allies faced was a Prussian unit or a Bavarian unit. They make the case that Bavarian units were more favored by the Allies because there was a deep distrust of goose-stepping Prussian militarism, while Bavarian units were thought to represent more middle-class or rural values. 
But as Dr. Thomas Weber of the University of Aberdeen notes in recent research, a key factor in whether or not a Christmas truce took place was not whether or not the enemy the Allies faced was Prussian or Bavarian, but more likely who the Germans faced. Was it the British with whom they had some cultural affinity? Or was it the French, still seething over the Franco-Prussian War? In the end, however, the identity of the enemy didn't always matter. Not every soldier was interested in a Christmas truce. Many on both sides, especially as the war dragged on, were much against it, and would warn the enemy away from such an idea. Some, like Adolf Hitler, facing Canadian soldiers on Vimy Ridge in 1916, looked with disapproval on the idea of a Christmas truce, and welcomed the snipers and artillery fire as a means to prevent fraternization. According to a contemporary, Hitler even said, something like this should not even be up for discussion during wartime. But then there was a great deal of difference between the wartime experiences of Hitler, a regimental runner, and the frontline troops in the trenches. Regardless of how widespread the Christmas truces of 1914 were, or what caused or prevented them from happening, the Christmas truce of 1914 continues to fascinate and inspire people in our time probably because it seems to be one of the singular moments in World War I in which the soldiers crawled out of their troglodyte world and for a brief glimmer, modern civilized man appeared to be just that. Modern, humane, advanced, civilized, and even a courtly sportsman. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.